0: If you have your outline from last week, we're going to be on the back side at point number four, the fourth seal. We talked about the first three seal judgments last week. And before we get into this, however, I want to take a step back because it slipped my mind in last week's message to begin with this. It kind of... um, Uh, launches back to our discussion on Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks is a foretelling of Israel's history. Israel was a great kingdom once under David. The kingdom was divided. It turned to idolatry. God raised up judgment, which began with King Nebuchadnezzar and the invasion of Babylon and the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. And from that point until now, From Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of the temple, the days of Daniel until now, we're in what's called the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles um, overlap a bit with Daniel's 70 weeks. They come to an end at the same time that Daniel's 70 weeks comes to an end. We talked about the first 69 weeks being fulfilled in history from the going forth of the commandment of King Artaxerxes to rebuild the city In Nehemiah's day until Messiah the Prince, which was the triumphal riding of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem on a donkey in A.D. 30, the 10th of Nisan, was the fulfillment of 69 weeks. After that, two things would happen. Messiah would be cut off. That took place on 14 Nisan, A.D. 30. And then a second thing would happen. The people of the Prince that would come would destroy the city. That happened in A.D. 70 under the Romans. And from that period, we have been in a period, the Jews have endured a period of persecution throughout the world. They've been scattered as the times of the Gentiles marches on. And then something amazing happened in 1948. Israel was, Israel was regathered as a nation, and people are continuing to pour in there from all over the world to populate that place. Jewish people have been scattered. So the day's coming when that prophetic clock in Daniel's 70 weeks will start ticking again, and that is. When Antichrist signs a peace treaty, and within a one week period of years, everything purposed with Israel will be fulfilled. Messiah will return, and the kingdom which was divided with the death of Solomon, the kingdom which was forsaken with the idolatry of the kings of Israel and Judah, will be restored. And this time, Messiah will sit on the throne. So, this is all a huge historic context that plays into everything in the book of Revelation. But I just wanted to fall back for a moment on the book of Ezekiel chapter 4 because there's another prophecy concerning the iniquity of Israel and Judah that's tied directly, I believe, to the prophecy of the 70 weeks which is turn is tied which in turn is tied to the book of Revelation. So this prophecy in Ezekiel sheds light on the literal fulfillment of Daniel's first 69 weeks and adds further evidence to the fact that we can take these judgments in Revelation as literal and to mean nothing more than what they are simply uttered to be in their context. Ezekiel chapter 4, the prophet, it says, is told to take a tile, a piece of tile and to lay it before him, and to build a model of the city of Jerusalem, and then he's to lay siege against it and build a model of a fort going up against it, and uh, a battering ram, and, and, and a camp of the enemy, and uh, he's to make this model. And then he's told in verse four that this, or verse three, that this model would be a f- sign to the house of Israel, and that he is to lie on his left side, verse four. And lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, according to the number of the days that thou shalt lie upon it, shalt thou bear their iniquity. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days, three hundred and ninety days, so thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. So in other words, he was to lay on his left side for 390 days. This would be a testimony against the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, for their iniquity, 390 days for 390 years, which was the period of their iniquity before God. Then he was to turn to his right side and lie for 40 days as a sign against the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, the the tribe of David, And and those from the other tribes that came and were a part of that kingdom, 40 days would stand for 40 years of their iniquity. So this was to propel forward and talk about years of Judah and Israel's iniquity. Now I find it very interesting that in 975 BC, Solomon died. And very shortly after his death, the kingdom was divided. The southern kingdom and the northern kingdom split much like there was a split for several uh, from 1861 to 1865 between the northern states and the southern states. That was not a civil war. A civil war is when two factions fight for control over one government. The South never desired control over the government in Washington. They never fought to take it over. They fought for their independence and, uh, and lost. Today we might look back on that and say that's unfortunate. And I'm not talking about the issue of slavery. But uh, that was not a civil war in terms of the proper definition. What happened in Israel and Judah was a separation. The northern kingdoms declared their independence. That brought war, but the northern kingdom was able to maintain it. Very shortly after that, King Jeroboam, whom God promised to bless if he would lead the northern tribes in faithfulness to the God of Israel, erected two idols in the northern kingdom, one in the city of Bethel and one in Dan. He was afraid that the people of his kingdom would continue to go to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple. And he wanted to prevent that from happening, so he took religious matters into his own hands in defiance of God's law and erected two idols, two golden calves, much like what was done in the wilderness when Moses was in the mount put one at Dan and one at Bethel and it said the people began to go a whoring after these idols. And going forward, Jeroboam appointed his own priests who weren't of the tribe of Levi and they kind of set up their own false religious system. So from that division of the kingdom forward, Israel fell into idolatry. Their iniquity that I believe is being referred to here is their idolatry. And, 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 and Ezekiel is told to lay on his side for 390 days as a sign of a 390-year period of Israel's idolatry. I find it interesting that from the death of Solomon in 975 B.C. until the 11th year of King Zedekiah, when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, was a period of 390 years. So, So from the division of the kingdom, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C., The southern kingdom fell in 586 B.C. was a period of 390 years. Israel rejected the revelation of God. They rejected God's monarch in favor of idolatry. And that period of time was the period of their iniquity. Now we know that in Ezekiel's time that period came to an end because if you turn to chapter 35 of Ezekiel in verse 5, the prophet is prophesying against Mount Seir, or or Edom, the land of the descendants of Esau. And God is uttering judgment against them because of their treatment of the people of Israel. And it says in verse 5, Because thou hast had a perpetual hatred and hast shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword in the name of their calamity in the time that their iniquity had an end. This was referring to the time when the City was sacked and the people were led away captive and Jerusalem was destroyed under Nebuchadnezzar. The people of Edom rejoiced and persecuted those left behind. Caused trouble in the time that Israel's iniquity had an end. The iniquity of, of, of the nation had an end when it was carried away captive. And so this 390 day period refers to that 390 years between the division of the kingdom when Israel rejected God's monarch and fell into idolatry until the time that God carried the kingdom away and in effect it was dissolved. So we have this 390 year period in history if you go back and count the years and accommodate the co-regencies and the non-accession year dating versus the accession year dating. I know you don't know what all that means and I'm not going to get into it. It's interesting that from the division of the kingdom to the last king of Judah 586 BC was 390 years. Then it goes on to this prophecy about Jerusalem, or Judah, the southern kingdom, and I've, I've always wondered what could this be referring to. And as I began to study, I found it very amazing that Jesus Christ was crucified on the 14th of Nisan, A.D. 30. Okay, Under, When Solomon died, Israel rejected its monarch, and they fell into idolatry when the remnant came back into the land under Zerubbabel and the temple was rebuilt, the nation never again fell into idolatry. There was no more idolatry from the time of Zerubbabel until the time of Christ. Unfortunately, however, the people went so far the other direction that they became legalists and they began to add laws and rules and regulations to God's revelation. The synagogues rose up, the classes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees And so you had false religion or idolatry was put away. But when they returned to the land, though there was no more idolatry, it became dead religion or legalism. So they fell into works. So God's revelation was rejected. God's true monarch of Israel came when Christ was born in 4 B.C. and He was rejected. So I see some similarities to what happened in the Old Testament with the divided kingdom. 14 Nisan A.D. 30, Christ was crucified. 14 Nisan A.D. 70, exactly 40 years later, was when General Titus and the Roman legions began their siege of the city of Jerusalem. Okay, that siege started on 14th of Nisan, which was March or April, I don't remember the exact date. And it ended in August. So it happened that year. And the city was destroyed, the temple burned down, people fled, many people were killed. I find it interesting that from Christ's death until the destruction of the city, looking back on history, it's apparent that God gave Judah, or the remnant, descendants of those that had returned under, when King Cyrus gave them permission, God gave them 40 years to repent, reconsider, and receive the Messiah that they had rejected. God raised up Jewish preachers, Jewish witnesses that went out and declared the gospel after the resurrection and ascension of Christ to all the towns and cities of Jerusalem. It was declared in the temple. It was rejected by the nation when Stephen was stoned, but still that witness went out even until the days of John. John was alive when the city was destroyed. So God gave them 40 years to repent and they refused to do it. God gave Israel 390 years to repent of their idolatry. They refused. They were, they were scattered. He gave Judah 40 years to repent of a religion of works that rejected Messiah, and they refused to repent and reconsidered. They were conquered and scattered. And the Jews were scattered from that time until they began to be regathered in 1948. Now, in the Jewish Talmuds, which are religious commentaries and journals and various things kept by the rabbis, it's recorded that during that 40 year period from the death of Christ until the destruction of the temple by the Romans, that every night for 40 years in that time period, the chief light or the high light on the candlestick of the menorah in the temple, which was supposed to be lit all the time, it was supposed to be an eternal flame, it would mysteriously snuff out and nobody knew why. Also Josephus talks about two great big brass temple doors that took 20 men to open and close doors to the court of the temple gates that during this 40 year period they would mysteriously be found open just slightly opened as if somebody pushed them open so these weird this weird phenomenon phenomena took place during the 40 years and it's apparent that this 40 year period is what's being referred to in the book of Ezekiel. And since the Romans destroyed the city in A.D. 70, 40 years after Christ was crucified, and these, 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 this phenomena uh, of course ceased with the destruction of the temple, then it adds further verification to the truth that Christ was cut off in A.D. 30. So I just find that very interesting how all of these prophecies were centered around the time of Christ They were fulfilled in history literally. This phenomenon that accompanied this 40 years is very interesting. And it amazes me how the Jewish people were unable to recognize their Messiah when He came. And they will be unable to recognize the false Messiah as being false when He comes. But that's blindness from God. But praise God, one day the eyes will be opened... And those promises will be restored. And just as the iniquity of Israel had an end with the dispersion in 586 B.C., the iniquity of Judah had an end rejecting their Messiah with the dispersion in A.D. 70. So Israel's separation from God or Israel's um, adulterous relationship with the Lord, her unfaithfulness, will have an end. And she will be reconciled. Reconciled. And that's the theme of the book of Hosea the prophet. And we can look forward to that day and rejoice when we see that begin to come to pass for the people for the people. So I find that interesting and with that I should have covered all those terms that I said I would connect to the book of Revelation a couple weeks ago. So let's get back into chapter 6. The 69 weeks were fulfilled. They ended in AD 30. As confirmed by history, as confirmed by this additional prophecy, God gave Israel a 40 year period to repent. She refused to do it. She was scattered to the nations, and there's been a war against the Jewish people ever since. The Bible talks about them being a byword amongst the nations as a judgment, and we see that. Anti Semitism is everywhere, it shouldn't be in the church. There's no place for anti Semitism in the church. And if it is, that's wicked and it needs to be repented of, okay? We ought to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, they shall prosper that love thee. God's covenant with Abraham, I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you, is in effect. And it ought, we ought to have a desire that the Jewish people would hear the gospel. I find it amazing that many churches and many ministries, it never even crosses their mind that the Jewish people need Christ that there's an opportunity these days to be a witness to the Jewish people, particularly young people who are seeing the deadness of their religion, who are seeing the new wave of anti-Semitism and are beginning to question things and therefore are open to the truth of the Gospel. That's why we in Full Proof have decided to make that an avenue of ministry. And that's something Ricky's focused upon. We're excited about some opportunity to build a hospitality ministry uh, in South Asia to Jewish backpackers. And we're hoping the Lord will bring that to pass. And He's already provided some funding to get that off the ground. And so we're just praying right now about how we can go forth with that and would uh, uh, appreciate your prayers in in that matter as well. But let's get back into chapter 6. We talked about the first three seals of judgment last week. The first seal, of course, the white horse, the rise of Antichrist, through peace and diplomacy. Sometimes peace and diplomacy looks good to us, but it's really judgment from God. It's a way to conceal the real problem. The second seal was the red horse. War, we talked about how that war very well could be the invasion of Israel as recorded in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Talked about the third seal, not just famine, but economic collapse, where the financial systems would break down inflation would go through the roof and it would take a day's wages just to buy one good meal and some of us think that that's far-fetched and hard to believe but today we're really not that far from that type of inflation we went out to eat last night with Jim and we were talking about if you go to a nice restaurant or a decent restaurant around here and you pay for your family to eat you're not that far away from what a day's wages is for a minimum wage worker just to eat one meal. Now, albeit a nice meal, but the day's coming when a basic meal will cost a day's wages. You might get three cheap meals out of it. There are people all around the world that know this already. We in America have been shielded from these problems. There's places in Nepal where people make enough money to basically buy three meals of rice and lentils. And that's it. I think the average... Uh, I can't remember the figures, but the average annual income from the poly laborer, I believe, is uh, less than $1,000. And so we just can't comprehend these things. But there's a day coming when it'll be worse. And then we got to the fourth seal last week. The fourth seal of judgment. Now remember, it is... Christ that is opening these seals. He is the instigator of judgment. Man and man-made or natural phenomenon, or phenomena, I keep misspeaking the singular and plural forms. The natural phenomena of these seals is just instrumentation. It's just God's instruments. Now there's a time when we'll transition from judgment via instruments to judgment directly from God, and the judgment becomes more supernatural. And I think that's where we see the dividing line between the first half and second half of Daniel's 70th week. But let's look at verse 7. And again, we're on the back side of the outline. And when He, that is the Lamb that was slain, had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. The fourth beast was that cherubim that had a face as an eagle back in chapter 4. So each of the four beasts are talking with John and revealing these seals. He said, come and see. I've talked about how that is a reference, I believe, to the role of the church during this period of tribulation, to stand by and behold the judgment of God. Behold as God makes right what has been made wrong. Behold as justice is served. Verse 8, and I looked and behold a pale horse. That word behold there indicates a look of surprise, or a look of awe, or a look of shock. What John was seeing was something that shocked him. Just like in the first seal. Behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and And with death and with the beast of the earth. Okay? So we have this fourth seal, which is actually a pale horse. That word pale comes from a Greek word from which we get words like chlorophyll. Okay? When you hear the word chlorophyll, what color do you think of? It's related to plant, kind of a green color. It's the Greek word chloros, it indicates a pale green. Kind of like a corpse color, the color of death. If any of you, you guys have seen those Lord of the Rings movies, right? I think a good example of this is in the second movie, I believe, when these hobbits are, are walking through what they call the dead marshes. It's these swamplands, and they look down in the water and they see these corpses in there from a great battle long ago. And as they're looking into the water, one of, one of the corpses opens his eyes and it's this pale green color. That's what's being referred to here. The color of death. This horse unleashed by the Lamb has a rider. And this rider is named. Okay? None of the other riders are named. This one has a name. His name is death. And he's followed by hell. Now, don't misunderstand. Hell is not the lake of fire. Hell is not the judgment revealed in Revelation Chapter 20. Okay? Hell is a holding cell. It's like a county jail in God's prison. It's a temporary state. And death and hell are the custodians of body and soul in relation to the ungodly, not in relation to the saved. Death and hell have no power over those that are born again. The custodian of the body and soul of the born again is God, is heaven. The custodian of the body. The body will be resurrected at the rapture. The soul is catapulted to God's throne. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So this seal is not in relation to the righteous. Okay? The church is gone at this time. There are those that will come to Christ. There will be a great revival. This seal is not in reference to those. It's the next seal, the fifth seal, that is in reference to the righteous. But the fourth seal is in reference specifically to the ungodly. Death riding in with hell following. This indicates a terrible loss of life. Not persecution for those claiming Christ, but a terrible loss of life for the wicked. For the wicked. Now we've had loss of life, obviously, in the other seals. Peace and diplomacy will bring loss of life for those who won't capitulate, for those who won't receive the mark, whether they be saved or not, whether they be tribulation saint or not. Of course, war brings a terrible loss of life in the second seal. Famine, economic collapse will bring loss of life in this third seal. This is a different type of death, I believe, in verse 4. We see death as God's judgment at the hands of these other phenomena. phenomena. Here, what I believe is sudden and expected death, is unexpected death. When there's starvation and economic collapse, death is expected. When there's war, death is expected. When there's tyranny in government, death is expected. But there's a lot of death that's unexpected. And people are caught off guard and aren't ready when they are snuffed into eternity. Yesterday there were six, a team of six climbers climbing Mount Rainier in Washington State. I summited Mount Rainier back in 2002. A lot of people think it's easy, it can be, but it can also be a very dangerous mountain. And they were near the summit, the same place, or the same route that Dylan and I took back in 2002, and then all of a sudden they disappeared. And the only reason people, it was known that they disappeared is that some were carrying emergency beacons similar to like what I carry sometimes and those things went off and they were emanating from a point buried under the snow many hundreds of feet below where this crew was last spotted so it's obvious there was some sort of avalanche and these climbers have been buried. It was two guides from a guide agency and then four um, clients. And so just snuffed out. Their bodies haven't been found. It's it's been more than a day and it's presumed that they were just wiped off the mountain with a sudden avalanche. That is sudden and unexpected loss of life. And I believe there's a day coming during Daniel's 70th week when life will be characterized by what seems to be rare today. Sudden and unexpected loss of life. What could this entail? God only knows. Traffic accidents. I like to refer to this, for, or or traffic accidents, or um, explosions, or terrorist attacks, who knows. But I like to refer to this seal not as death, but as tragedy. A tragedy is an unexpected trauma, and it usually involves death. The first seal, peace and diplomacy. The second seal, war. The third seal, economic collapse and ruin. The fourth seal, tragedy. Death and hell are unleashed upon the ungodly. In terms of hell, let's turn to the book of Isaiah for a moment. Because I think under this fourth seal, we're going to see a fulfillment, in a sense, of what is a prophecy here. Isaiah 5, 14 and 15. Now, in this chapter, God is issuing six woes against the nation of Israel for her sin. And He talks about in the midst of these woes, one, um, the second woe is, is the woe against the partiers. Those that are consumed with um, carousing and reveling and partying and have no concern for the things of the Lord. That was the day's, in Israel, that these things were uttered. And it says in verse 14, because of this, because of a society consumed with partying and reveling, therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure. And their glory, that is the glory of those in seats of affluence, the glory of those in Israel in that day in seats of influence, the glory of those having one big party Their multitude, their pomp, and he that rejoiceth shall descend into it. That is hell. And the mean man, that is the average man, will be brought down as well. And the mighty man will be humbled. And the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord God of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. And God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. In other words, it is said that in the midst of a wicked nation, hell would enlarge herself and many would be brought down into it as judgment from God, and as a result, God would be glorified. I think we see this in Isaiah in reference to Israel. But this same theme is in reference to the entire earth with the fourth seal. Now the context of this passage in Isaiah is six woes against Israel because of what their society had become. And I preached once on, a, on, a, on this passage because there's a lot of similarities between the society of Israel in the time Isaiah uttered his prophecy and American society today. If these things were woe against a people that once knew God and had turned from Him in terms of Israel, then surely they apply to us, a society that once has no that once knew God and has since turned from Him. The first woe is against hoarders, those that heap up earthly treasures. Verse eight. In America, a place of hoarders. Heaping up stuff. I mean, we even have TV shows about people that hoard, and we're entertained by that. And some of that stuff blows my mind because you would never see it anywhere else. People don't have that type of affluence. This is a nation where we hoard things unto ourselves. We hoard money. We hoard earthly treasures. We hoard things that really have no value. Okay? Okay. Woe unto those that hoard. Woe unto those that party and don't have time to regard God. Verse 11. This is a nation of partiers. Go to any college campus in this country. Christian campuses included. So-called Christian campuses included. Many on a weekend. It's all about getting drunk. It's all about sex. It's all about drugs. And waking up with a hangover the next day. And the Lord's Day is spent recovering from the weekend we are a society of reveling partying woe unto the debauched and perverted verse 10 talks about drawing iniquity i mean not verse 10 verse 18 woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as it were a cart rope in other words dragging it behind in open view for everyone to see, boasting in their sin and iniquity. We live in a nation where men march and men sue to justify their sin. The debauched, the perverted are everywhere. We're in a society where people who claim to be Christian are saying and falling for the lie that homosexual marriage is an issue of civil rights and that God has no say in this or that there's nothing wrong with such backward perversion. Woe unto the reprobates, verse 20. Them that call evil good and good evil. Isn't that America today? Those things that are righteous, life, particularly the life of the unborn are considered evil. Those things that are evil, homosexuality, sodomy, greed, things that turn us from God, worldliness, those things are paraded as good and beautiful. Hollywood, all of this stuff. Evil is good, good is evil. Backwards. Woe unto the arrogant and prideful. Verse 21, them that are wise in their own eyes. We live in a nation of humanists. People that think we don't need God. And God forbid you'd even mention God's name at a high school graduation or in a classroom. God forbid you'd even think That the world is the product of the of the creative ability of an omniscient creator. You're considered a fool. We live in a nation of arrogant and prideful humanists, and then woe unto the unjust, which justify the wicked, verse twenty three, for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. That's the society today. The righteous suffer, the wicked are justified. Even in the church, wicked false teachers are put on a pedestal while the righteous, those that stand up for truth, those that live it out, are scolded and mocked. Woe unto those engaged in such things. Woe unto a society characterized by these things. That was the prophet speaking to the people of Israel. And because the society was corrupted, hell enlarged herself how much more so would that apply to us today because we have gone the same path. And we've got this example here in the Scriptures and we fail to learn by it. Therefore, hell enlarges herself. There's a day coming when this world is so far from God that the church is raptured out, the witness of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers is gone. Antichrist arises and society is characterized by these things with intensity intensity and hell therefore enlarges herself, as in Israel, so in all the earth. Matthew, turn to Proverbs twenty-seven, twenty. And uh, Ricky, if you'll look up Habakkuk two, verse five, this has some things to say about hell, death, and hell. While they're doing that, I'll take the scroll here and break this seal. The fourth seal, we have the pale horse, death, pictured as a grim reaper here, death, hell following in the train, so I'll leave this out here. Y'all can pass that around, look at it if you want to. Alright, Proverbs 27:20. 20. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Hell and destruction are never full. There are people pouring into it every day. Never full. Just like the eyes of the natural man never satisfied with what they have. They always want more. Hell's never full, and in the days of this fourth seal, it will open her mouth wide. Habakkuk 2.5 Yea, also, because he transgressive by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home... "...who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all peoples." Death and hell cannot be satisfied. She opens her mouth to receive people from all nations and all peoples. That goes on every day. And much of the church is asleep. They have no care for evangelism. They would rather appease the lost than open up their mouth and share the truth. You know, I read an article this week, uh, weekend about this famous woman who's supposedly this pioneer of raising awareness about sex trafficking and child trafficking in Asia. And she had this story of growing up in slavery and being rescued, and she's got this foundation that gets all kinds of money. Well, it was revealed that her story wasn't true. It was made up. She didn't grow up like that. It was all a scam. And I just think about all of this emphasis today on these, these, these causes like sex trafficking. Even to an extent the cause uh, against abortion, if it's not woven with the Gospel message and a desire to see people repent of sin and be saved, then that's all it is, a cause. A cause that leads to death. You can be pro-life and be at an abortion clinic, every single day the doors are open. And yet believe the false gospel of Catholicism and perish in your sins. And your calls or your actions on the day of judgment will not benefit you because you're not covered by the blood of the Lamb. You can, be, you can, you can view missions or evangelism as raising awareness about sex trafficking. Usually, the raising awareness doesn't involve anything but raising some funds and looking important, and it's a bridge to be critical of Christians that are preaching the gospel. But as far as really doing anything about it, I don't see a whole lot of that from our churches. The sex trade, sex trafficking is the latest fad of the churches, by the way. Nobody cares about abortion. To me, that's the ultimate example of child trafficking. Unborn fetuses harvested to make makeup. And all these other things that go on. That's not talked about. That's the ultimate child trafficking. No one cares about that. But you know, man-made causes lead nowhere without the gospel. Hell's mouth is open and people from all nations are perishing. The best way to fight sex trafficking, child trafficking in a place like Nepal, is to go into those towns and villages where those wicked parents have been duped into selling their children and lift up the gospel Warn them of the coming judgment and share with them how they can be saved. And then be willing to meet the needs they have and disciple them in the truth of the gospel. That's not done very much, unfortunately. People from all nations perishing into hell. There's a day coming when hell will open her mouth wide. And it's a day when the church is no longer here, but God will have His witnesses. And when hell opens her mouth wide... The fourth seal, people from all nations will fall into her, but there will be people from all nations that escape her. We'll see that in the next chapter. A great revival. The last revival will take place during the tribulation. We won't be the preachers of it. Won't be us. The first revival, the first awakening in the Christian church, arose because of the preaching of Jewish men, of the Jews. The last one will be the preaching of the Jews. We'll get into that later. Hell and death, the fourth seal. But you need to remember that it's the Lamb that holds the keys of hell and death. When hell opens her mouth, it's the Lamb that opens it to receive. Now some of us can't handle that. We can't stomach that. Christians would blush at the idea that the Lamb of God, the spotless Son of God who gave His life and loved the world to do so, would hold the keys of hell and death and open it wide to receive. This lamb, this meek and humble lamb that loved the world, he spilled his blood, is a lamb that's holy, righteous, and judgment will come. Today's not a day of judgment, praise God, it's a day of salvation. Let's preach salvation, because when the judgment comes, for many it will be too late. Hell and death are given power here by the Lamb. But ultimately, the hell and death that come riding in on this fourth seal, they themselves will also be cast into the lake of fire, the judgment throne of God. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 verse 14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Death and hell open their mouths wide. Many fall therein. Those in hell will be judged at Revelation 20, cast into the lake of fire, as will death and hell themselves. The lake of fire and brimstone, not hell, but an eternal lake of fire. Not where soul is tormented, but body and soul. A place where Antichrist and the false prophet will be cast alive. A place where Satan will be cast alive for all eternity and all his angels. It's Christ that holds the key. He opens it to receive, gives death and hell power here, but they will one day be judged as well. It's kind of like Habakkuk and his questioning of God when God said he would use Babylon to come in and judge the people of Israel. Habakkuk couldn't understand why God would use an unrighteous, wicked nation like this to judge God's chosen people. And God explained to him that the day would come when Babylon herself would be judged as well. That was up to him and his sovereignty. So what God allows to wreak havoc here in the fourth seal also will be judged. It's kind of that age-old truth we see in the book of Job. Something people forget about. Reality is not good versus evil. It's not God versus Satan. There is no doubt about the outcome. God's up here. He governs everything as the omniscient Creator and Governor. Satan's down here. Satan only thinks he can ascend to the throne of the Most High. But he can't. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Turn to the book of Job real quick. Just real quick. Chapter 1. We need to remember these verses because they shed light on an age-old truth. Job calls. I mean, Satan calls Job's integrity into question, and he asked if he can test him. Look what God says in verse twelve. The Lord said unto Satan, "Behold, all that he has is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand." So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. God gave Satan power to touch Job's possessions, but said, "You're not to put your hand upon him." And Satan wasn't able to do it. And then after Job showed himself a man of integrity, even in these judgments, Satan came back and said, well, if you'll let me put my hand upon him and touch his flesh, then he will curse you. Chapter 2, verse 6, God says, Behold, he is in thy hand, but save his life. So God said, okay, I'll let you touch his flesh, but you're not to kill him. Satan couldn't do what God didn't let him do. God is in control. An age-old truth. And it's His governing Justice that is working behind the scenes here. I had a bicycle uh, uniform that I wore when I rode across America several years ago to preach the gospel. And it said, judgment is coming. Repent. Praise God those that know Jesus Christ and are saved will escape that judgment. For it's not been appointed unto us wrath, but salvation.